Section 63 of Old Rail Fence Corners. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jill Ingle. Old Rail Fence Corners. Edited by Lucy Leavenworth Wilder Morris. Judge Thomas S. Buckham. 1856. In 1856, three or four hundred Indians, on their way to the annual payment, camped in the woods between town and Cannon City. One evening we went, in a body, to visit them, and were entertained by dancing. However, too much fire-water caused some fear among the guests. We had several courses of lectures during those early years. One year we had, as lecturers, Wendell Phillips, Douglas, Beecher, Tilton, and Emerson. Following them came the Peake family, bell ringers, and, last of all, a sleight-of-hand performer from Mankato, Mr. Wheeler, who astonished his audience by swallowing a blunt sword twenty-two inches long. At another time we had a homemade lecture course, in which Mr. Cole, Mr. Batchelder, Judge Lowell, myself, and others took part. One of our first celebrations of the Fourth of July ended rather disastrously. We had planned a burlesque procession in which everybody was to take part. It started out fairly well. Dr. Jewett delivered an oration, and Frank Nutting sang a song called The Unfortunate Man. But the enthusiasm was shortly quenched by torrents of rain, which in the end literally drove most of the participants to drink. After the panic of 1857-8, to eight, I was sitting idly one day in front of my office on Main Street, as there was absolutely no law business. No other man was in sight, and there hadn't been a dollar seen in the town in months, except the shin-plaster issued by banks, which must be cashed on the instant, lest the bank in question should fail overnight. Suddenly I saw a stranger walking down the street, and, as very few strangers had come to town of late, I watched him idly. As he came up, he asked, "'Young man, do you know of a good piece of land which can be bought?' I spoke of a farm south of town, of which I had charge, which was for sale for $2,100, or $12.50 an acre. He said, "'I'll go and see it.' Two or three hours later, as I still sat dreaming, as there was no other business of any kind for any one to do, the man returned, and after asking about the title of the land which its owner had preempted, said that he would think about it, and went into the bank. Having made some inquiries as to my responsibility, he shortly reappeared with a bundle of greenbacks of small denominations, and counted out the two thousand one hundred dollars. They were the first government bank notes I had ever seen, and such a sum of money as had not been seen in Faribault in many months. My client then said, now, young man, you'll see that land worth twenty-five dollars an acre some day. Today it is part of the Weston farm, and is valued at one hundred fifty dollars an acre, and is the nicest farm in the country. The first political machine in the state was organized in Faribault, the year Minnesota became a state. Five or six of us young men decided to put a little new life into politics, and we prepared a slate. It was five or six against a hundred unorganized voters and we carried the caucus, and were all sent as delegates to the convention. 
Here also our modern method produced a revolution. But such a fight resulted that the convention split, and some of them went over to vote the Democratic ticket. However, we elected a fair proportion of our candidates, and defeated those who had been holding the offices by force of habit. Mrs. Rodney A. Mott, 1857 We came to Faribault, I think, the nicest and easiest way. We drove from Illinois in a covered immigrant wagon. At first we tried to find lodgings at night, but the poor accommodations and the unwillingness to take us in led us at last to sleep in the wagon, and we came to prefer that way. After we got away from the really settled country, everyone welcomed us with open arms, and gladly shared with us everything they had. We came up through Medford. I begged to stay there, but Mr. Mott insisted on going to Faribault as they had planned. Our first house was a little cabin, on the site of the present cathedral, and later we lived in a house where the haymarket now stands, but this was lost on a mortgage during the hard times in 1857. Mrs. Kate Davis Batchelder, 1858 As Kate Davis, a girl of ten, I came with my brother, a lad of eighteen, and a sister fourteen, from New York to Wisconsin. Our father was in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, where his business as a millwright had called him, and it was thought best to have us go out to be with him. We came in a wagon, drawn by a team of spirited horses. We came over the thousand miles between New York and Wisconsin, fording unfamiliar rivers, stopping in strange cities, through prairie and forest, with only rough wild roads at best, never doubting our ability to find our father at our journey's end, and perhaps because of that unquestioning faith we did find him. What a journey to remember! We camped in Chicago, when it was no larger than Faribault is now, on the spot near the lakefront where the Congress Hotel now houses the most exclusive of Chicago's mob of humanity. Milwaukee, as we passed through it, was a tiny hamlet. When I went to visit my brother, who had taken the farm on the east shore of Cannon Lake, I made the trip to Hastings in boat, and from there in a wagon. As we were driving along, I saw coming towards us three figures which instinct told me were Indians. On coming nearer, I saw each of them had scalps dripping with blood hanging to his belt. They reassured me by telling me that they were only Indian scalps. Mr. Barry, afterward a judge on the Supreme Bench, started out on foot from Janesville, Wisconsin, with Mr. Batchelder, and, after prospecting around and visiting St. Paul, Shakopee, Mankato, Cannon Falls, and Zambroda, they finally walked in here. Fifty years afterwards, Mr. Batchelder went out to Cannon Lake and walked into town over the same road that he had come over as a young man, and he said that while, of course, the buildings had changed things somewhat, on the whole it looked surprisingly as it had the first time he had passed over it. Mr. Barry and Mr. Batchelder opened a law office in a little one-story frame building in the back of which they slept. While coming into town they had met O. F. Perkins, who had opened a law office, and, business not being very brisk, he had turned a rather unskillful hand to raising potatoes. At two dollars and fifty cents a bushel he managed to do well enough, and eked out his scanty income from the law. It was while he was carrying the potatoes to plant that he met Mr. Berry and Mr. Batchelder, and having become friends they all, together with Mr. Randall and Mr. Perkins's brother, 
started Bachelor's Hall back of Mr. Perkins's office, where they took turns cooking and washing dishes. I have heard Mr. Batchelder say that hasty pudding, or what we call cornmeal mush, was his specialty, and I believe partly in recollection of those old days when lack of materials, as well as unskillful cooks, compelled the frequent appearance of this questionable dainty, partly, perhaps, because he had learned to like it, hasty pudding was served Monday on his table for all the later years of his life. During one winter I attended several dances in a rude hall, whose walls were lined with benches of rough boards, with the result that my black satin dress was so full of slivers that it took all my time to pick the slivers out. We always wore hoops, and mine were of black whalebone, covered with white cloth. One day, when at my brother's house, my hoop skirt had been washed and was hanging to dry behind the stove, and I was in the little bedroom in the loft. My sister called to me that some young men were coming to call, and I was forced to come down the ladder, from the loft, to my great mortification without my hoops. There they hung, in plain sight, all during that call. At Cannon Lake, near my brother's cabin, was a place where the Indians had their war dances. One night, after we had gone to bed, in the little loft over the one downstairs room, I was awakened by my brother's voice in altercation with some Indians. It seemed the latch-string, the primitive lock of the log cabin, had been left out, and these Indians came in. They wanted my brother to hide them, as they had quarreled with the other Indians. This he refused to do, and drove them out. The next morning the tribe came by, dragging the bodies of those two Indians. They had been caught just after leaving the house. The bodies were tied over poles, with the heads, arms, and legs trailing in the dust. Mrs. John C. Turner the Nutting Hotel was the scene of many a dance, when settlers came from miles around to take part in quadrilles and reels to the music of violin. We used to bring an extra gown, so that after midnight we might change to a fresh one, for these dances lasted till daylight. When sliding down the hill where St. James School now stands, it was rather exciting to be upset by barricades erected near the foot by mischievous Indian boys, who greeted the accident with hoots of joy. End of section 63